Pastor John here. Welcome to the Consumed Church Weekly Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message by our special guest, Michael Berdour. Behold the love of God. For any further information about this message or the ministries of Consumed Church, you can check us out at theconsumedchurch.com. so good to be with you and uh, Diane will probably come up and share a little bit more later so I'm hoping waiting on the Lord but um, but uh, gosh I just feel like uh, even just that little taste of worship is so sweet I know it's not your normal set you guys probably go longer but just a great opportunity to be in the presence of the Lord with you so grateful so great to see the building God's given you guys and we've gotten to hang out as he said a couple days like you know from about afternoon yesterday and spend time together and you know we met in, originally I think at Hendersonville is that right uh, about a, yeah a year and a half ago that's true before that and then but then uh, you know we've got a little bit more time and then this most recent pastors gathering but um, I'm just getting to know these guys and I'm amazed what amazing leaders you have in this congregation and I'm super happy to get you know just build our friendship because, you know, friendship isn't all about just ministering side by side. It's about really getting to know each other, learning each other's hearts, being able to kind of hear your stories and find out, you know, how God has led you through the season. And uh, I just feel like you guys are choice, you know. It's just such an honor to know you and to be with you. In fact, when we started coming here, we were actually invited to a church in the north of here, probably about an hour and a half, and, uh, and I just said, hey, you know, we're going to be in town, and, and so it worked out that we were able to come and just uh, stop by for this, so really excited, but maybe at some future point we can do something a little bit more in depth and hang out together more. But um, anyway, I felt like I had a couple of words for people as we get started tonight, and one was for you. I, I can't remember your name, but I saw, what's your name, I'm sorry? Margie, yeah. Margie, like when I looked over at you, I felt like the Lord said Ruth. Okay. And I feel like there's something about the call of Ruth on your life. And I felt like the, the couple of things that dropped immediately in my heart around that was, first of all, the way that Ruth adhered to Naomi and how she just said, I will not leave you. Your God is my God. I'm going to stay. And I feel like you've made those decisions in your life to hang in there when others were falling away, when things were happening, and you stood your ground and you stood in loyalty, you stood in perseverance and, and, and passion for the things you knew were God. And, and I felt like that was just such a clear sense of your, the way you have pleased God over the years has been that loyalty. The second thing that hit my heart, though, was just the, um, the sense of... Uh, <clears throat> Ruth made it into the lineage of Jesus. And I feel like God is promised that he's going to be moving in this coming season. Like Anna took the baby, you know. It's like you're in this situation where you're, where you're understanding the times we're in. And you are seeing on the horizon what God's about to do. And I feel like Jesus <laughs> is coming. You know, obviously, you know, I think he's coming back soon anyway in, in his bodily form, but I believe he's coming in revival. I believe that God's about to move, and I believe it's something you've been praying for for years, and it's something that I believe you're in the lineage of that outpouring. 
that God's going to use you to be a one who brings forth the Son of God in this, in this next wave of the Holy Spirit. So I just want to encourage you with that. I feel like it's something that the Lord put on my heart. And, and for you in the green shirt, what's your name? I'm sorry, Michael. Yeah, Michael, I felt like the Lord said, you're a straight arrow. And, uh, you know, that you're like, you're a straight arrow. But an arrow requires a couple things to work, and one is the tip, you know. The other one is the fletching at the bottom. And I felt like those are the two things that God's saying, I want your focus right now. And he, I, I believe it's gonna, you're going to be coming to a time of like even increased sort of personal revival. And I felt like the, the scripture that came to my mind was if your eye is single, your whole body will be filled with light. Like the point of an arrow. If your light, if your eye is single, like if you can actually hone it to that razor edge, if you can keep your focus on the Lord in the midst of a thousand distractions, because I know they're there. And, you know, if you just think about, I mean, all of us, you guys, be honest, you know, social media, entertainment of different kinds, music, uh, you know, careers, all the things that we're pursuing. I'm sorry? Yeah, exactly. Toddlers. I mean, that's, a, that's enough. We had, we had seven. So anyway, um, but I feel like there's a singleness of eye. And then I felt like it was almost like I don't usually get these kind of symbolic things, but the fletching I felt was like three things. And I felt like one was the Word of God. Like you have a call in the Word of God and you need to be uh, in the Word and the Word in you. The second thing was the presence of God. And I feel like oftentimes when somebody has a call in the Word of God, they're not as devoted to the presence. I feel like the Lord's given both those things to you. But the third issue I really felt strongly for you was that God's going to bring around you a, 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 a few men that you're called to be completely real with and that that's the third uh, feather on the arrow the third fletching that God's going to use and it's going to cause the arrow to fly straight those three things together and so I just want to you know encourage you with that word and and um, you know I just and and it was interesting when I was looking at you Brad I kind of had this picture okay um, when I was in Taiwan uh, there's this very tall building in the center of Taiwan Taiwan gets hit, hit with a tempest or, you know, hurricanes. What are they called? There's a term. For, um, typhoons, yeah. And, and, you know, you can have 150 mile an hour winds. And so a very tall building is very vulnerable. What they did in that tall wind is that they actually took this, I don't know, 300 ton ball and suspended it in the center of the building. And when the typhoon comes and hits the building, that ball is able to absorb and counteract the movement of the of the building. And I felt like God has made you this incredible force of stability. And and I feel like he's he's anchored you in his kingdom in such a way that the winds are going to blow and you're going to be you through that whole thing. You're going to be able to absorb all of that kind of friction, all that intensity of wind and God's going to use you. I think even more so in the future to be that that um ballast you know, that sense of absolute stability. Because I think there are going to be other little storms coming, some perhaps some big ones. But we need, we need you to be that voice of hope, that voice of strength, that voice of trust. You know, I feel like you carry that and you exude it. So we receive it from you. So anyway, well, bless you guys. Um, maybe later when we minister, God will have some other things. But um, what I wanted to do is share a little bit, um, you probably, you know, I don't know who's heard 
the videos, but you probably heard some of my stories, so I don't want to go into that. But, you know, just to say that Diane and I have been in, uh, we were in San Francisco for 33 years as ministers, an outreach where we were preaching the gospel. We had about, I don't know, 500 people show up for this outreach, and we, you know, broke into teams, and I made sure Diane was on my team, and we fell in love. I was telling these guys earlier, actually, we were, the first time we held hands was like two hours after I met her, and we were in this, like, it wasn't a riot, but it was, we were surrounded by a bunch of very angry people because we were worshiping Jesus on the street, and uh, I just wanted to reassure her, so I grabbed her hand and held it for a moment, and uh, anyway, I had to marry her after that, so <laughs> didn't, want, didn't want to defraud her, you know, and so anyway, yeah, so, um, but we have seven children, we have seven grandchildren. We, were, uh, we met a guy named John Wimber in 84, and we were in the Vineyard Movement for about 15 years. Then we were uh, pastors of, we, we left the Vineyard and ran our church as a sort of non-affiliated but under apostolic covering for about another 10 years. And then in 2010, the Lord, I mean, I'm shortening the story, but he told us we're done. <laughs> so we moved to Reading. Four of our kids were already up there going to school. Our daughter has been a pastor at Reading, you know, at the Bethel Church there for many years. And, uh, and so anyway, we uh, have been living there for the last uh, 12 years or so, a little bit less than 12 years. And I and, uh, got to work with Banning Liebscher and Jesus Culture for about four or five years. Then when they went to plant a church, that's when the Lord said, you're not going. We went out to look for houses. We just didn't feel it. And uh, we thought we were going to be part of that team. But anyway, it was, that was when the Lord kind of said, hey, I'm going to actually bring you into the call that I've had for you. Because we've had these call over our life, this prophecy that has gone for many, many times, di- different, you know, major and minor prophets, you know, speaking over us, that we were going to be leaders of leaders and pastors to pastors. And that was kind of a shock to us, you know, and we had to grow into that over the years. But then uh, probably it was around five years ago, the Lord said, now it's time. Well, maybe six years ago. And so we started pastorscoach.com, and that's how we originally connected. And then, and then you know, um, I started working with Catch the Fire. And I had worked with them closely. We had, we had actually embraced the outpouring in 1994 in our church in San Francisco. We had a 1,200-seat auditorium. And um, God moved, and we did almost 18 months of nightly meetings, six nights a week. So that'll tire you out. But, but it was wonderful. It was glorious. And uh, we saw so many people get touched and healed and blessed. And, and uh, so it was a wonderful thing when I started reconnecting with John and Carol Arnott and with Duncan and Kate Smith. And uh, it was a certain point about maybe two years ago that they asked us to join their, their movement. And we had been, you know, working closely with Bethel, but, but we went to, jo- uh, to Bill Johnson and said, hey, we just received this, this offer from some old friends. Will you bless it? And he said, absolutely. I feel like it's the Lord. And he sent us out to, to join Catch the Fire, which is now connected to us. You know, so we're, and so it's just been a wonderful journey. And uh, then most recently we started a thing called Leaders Alliance, which is uh, basically designed to help mobilize leaders from every sphere, church leaders, marketplace leaders, uh, thought leaders, emerging leaders, to join together to collaborate to see the church, the, the leadership level of the church grow. You know, we have a lot of good teaching around the seven mountains and transformation. Uh, we felt like we could do something by gathering us together, cross-pollinating with one another, and really beginning to form teams to really impact different spheres of society in a tangible way. 
And so that's really what we're about. And uh, so anyway, if you're interested, it's, it's not just for pastors. So if you, if you want to join and become a member, it's something that you might find really enriching for you. We have different teams focused on different stuff. But anyway, well, let's get into what I wanted to share tonight, okay? So um, I am going to be teaching off my iPhone tonight for the first time in my history as a minister. I normally treasure that thing called a Bible, you know, the actual pages and stuff. I'm that kind of guy. And, uh, and what happened was I forgot my Bible. <laughs> and so I figured, hey, you know, whatever. God may be trying to bring me into the 21st century already. Anyway, but it's so good to be with you. So if you have a Bible, or if you have a Bible device, will you open it up and turn with me to uh, first? John chapter 3. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we love you so much. Can you guys say that out loud? I love you. I love you, God. I love you, Jesus. I am so happy to be your son. I'm so happy to be your daughter, if you are one. Lord, we love you, and we ask that you would shower your love upon us right now. That you would open us to a greater revelation of who you are, and who we are in you. And we ask, God, that you would fill us to overflowing. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, I've been praying really all my life for revival. Diane and I got saved at the, you know, I was, she got saved a little bit before me, but if you've ever seen the the videos or the pictures of all the people on the, the cliffs of Corona del Mar, uh, in the Jesus movement, and there was like 10 pastors in the water, and they were baptizing people one after another. Well, Diane was one of those people in her puka shell bikini. And, uh, <laughs> and so, and, 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 you know, I don't know if you realize it, but during the Jesus movement in Southern California, probably for four years every weekend, three or 400 people were being baptized. Every weekend, you guys. I mean, we're talking about thousands of people a four-square church called Calvary Chapel went from 90 people that it had been stuck at for 10 years under the leadership of Chuck Smith. It went to literally 3,000, I think, within about a year. It was just a phenomenal outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But it wasn't just in Southern California. It was all over. It was called the Jesus Movement Revival. I mean, I've met people in Germany that were touched by it. I've met people in Australia that were touched by it. Because something happened where the Holy Spirit said, it's time now. We're going to move and we're going to start energizing. We're going to start convicting. We're going to start drawing. And people started awakening. And, And, you know... It was phenomenal. You know, so many of my friends that were saved in the height of that moment said, you just had to sneeze and people would come to Christ. You know, it's just that kind of, that kind of intensity. And, and I believe we're about to enter into another season like that. In fact, we're probably already entered it. But, we're, but, we're sti- we, but we haven't seen it at the level that we're talking about, right? We're seeing little, little shadows, little, little uh, clues that it's coming. But um, anyway, my point is in saying this, that I came to the Lord maybe a year later, so 1975. And so it was just beginning to wane. There was just like the embers and the coals, but it was fresh. And, you know, and, and people were still coming to Christ pretty strongly, but not at the same level of, uh, of intensity. Okay. But I came to Christ at that time. I started with this church plant in 1977, and we moved back to San Francisco. It was just a, an amazing season, but here, here's the situation. is um, 
I kind of missed it. You know what I mean? Like I came to the Lord right at the very tail end of this thing, and I, if I had just come to the Lord two years earlier, I would have been right in the heat of it. Okay? And since that time, I've been praying and fasting for revival. I've been reading every book you know, that I could read on revival. I've been just going after God in such a, a, a focused way for literally 45 years. They're just saying, God, we want more. We want, you know, we want to see this happen. And we've seen it before. And we say, God, do it again. And all those things. And then we see little outpourings. Like Vineyard was great. And, you know, uh, Brownsville was great. And Toronto was amazing. And, and, you know, now I'm at Bethel. And that's awesome. And, you know, we're seeing little signs, little, little uh, flutters. You know, but we're not seeing that full measure yet. Okay. And uh, But one of the things, about three weeks ago, I was praying, and I felt like the Lord just dropped this in my heart. And this isn't, you need to know, it's not the, the normal way I think. I'm much more of a chart and, uh, and uh, you know, sort of focused guy. I, I feel like um, I'm, I'm kind of more linear in my thinking. I'm not touchy-feely, warm-fuzzy, okay, in general, okay? I felt like the Lord spoke to me and said, one of the key characteristics of this next move of God will be love. It'll be love. They will know that we are Christians by our love. They'll know we are his disciples because we love one another. That love is, I believe, one of the indispensable keys of the next move of God. It's not going to be about power only. I think there's going to be power but I think it's power and love together. And I think it's necessary for us to go deeper into love if we want to prepare ourselves for what God's about to do. And this particular passage for me is one of the amazing, amazing love passages. Um, let me just read it to you and then we're going to dive into it. I probably should put my glasses on because, you know, I did just apply for Medicare. Um, <laughs> I'm not kidding, I did. Okay. Um, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God. Okay, whoa, just stop there for a moment. Let's, let's read that again, because it literally is one of the most outstanding statements in the entire scripture. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are the children of God. It has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Wow phenomenal so I just want to take this apart for a few minutes and then we're going to pray and see if God would actually reveal his love to us in a greater way but the first word is a phenomenal word behold and I think this is something that all of us need to be aware of is that we become what we behold and to the extent that we behold a bunch of garbage we become garbage to the extent that we behold, and again, I'm not against TV, and I'm not against a good movie, and I'm not, you know, in other words, I'm not against um, beauty. I love natural beauty. I, I love all beauty, okay? But I also know that if I'm spending 10, 12, 15 hours a day focused on everything other than Jesus, 
I'm going to become like what I focus on. Behold what manner. We become what we behold. And, and as you, I remember Diane and I, for one of our anniversaries, <laughs> we ended up going to Florence. And we were, um, we were in Italy. It was just phenomenal. We got like a whole week in this amazing villa. And then we got to travel around. We went to Florence. And we went to the, the, the big uh, museum there where we were actually one of the pinnacles of what you see is the, the Statue of David. I don't know if you guys have ever seen that. It's phenomenal. It's amazing. But as we came up the stairs to enter the hall in which the David was, they call it the David. It's just not David. It's the David. And we got up top of the stairs, and you look at these little carvings, like these little uh, uh, sculptures. And there's one sculpture that's just like very vague, but you can kind of make out a face. And then one next to it is a little bit more detail. And the one next to it is a little bit more, and a little bit more, and a little bit more. And then you look down and you see this absolutely perfect sculpture. And literally people from all over the world come to behold it. And, and when you're beholding it, like holding it, like you're, you're, you're thinking about this imperfect thing in front of you. Like you get, you get a picture of what the process must have been to produce that incredible, flawless thing. And you're just, you're blown away. It's just, it's, it's so exultant to be in the presence of that work of art. Behold. And you go up and you behold it. And you look at the, the veins in his feet that are carved, you know, you look at the veins in his arm. You look at his, you know, the, the intensity, the majesty of his, of his figure, you know, the face. And it's, it's just so phenomenal. And you can spend an hour just kind of examining each of the parts. And the scripture's inviting us to have that same attitude. Behold. Like to look at the veins, to look at the iris of God and to be able to see the love, to behold. And, and to behold, I, I don't think that the word behold is really what it means apart from the word hold. Like we hold it in our vision. We hold it. We behold it. And we just, and, and this, but it's not just God the creator, or God the omnipotent, or God the amazing, or, you know, God the eternal. Actually, he asks us to behold something very specific about God. The manner of love with which he loved us. Behold. I mean, there's a lot of different kinds of love. You guys understand that? I mean, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Four Loves, where he talks about eros, which is sexual love, talks about sorge, which is, you know, kind of a brotherly love. Uh, actually, phileo is the brotherly love. And then agape. He talks about these different kinds of love. But there's even more than that. I mean, you can actually go down to how you feel with your toddler. And there's different, you know, expressions of that love. Love is, love is actually like a diamond. It's got so many facets when you turn it. But he's asking us to look at one facet. The manner of love the Father has for us. What manner of love? Because there's a million different manners of love. But there's one specific thing he's asking us to hold in our vision. To behold. Which is the love that the Father has for us. Well, what does that mean specifically? That we should be called children of God. 
We're not just servants. We're not just slaves. We're not just, you know, we're not just objects. We're not just subjects. We are sons and daughters. And this, this, I mean, this revelation is something I'm still just getting. I mean, I, I've been following Jesus 45 years and I'm still just apprehending this amazing truth. You know, and, and thank God for Catch the Fire, you know. Thank God for John and Carol are not. They just came on our, our uh, broadcast and our podcast the other day and talking about this very thing about love. And I feel like they, they are like apostles of love. You know, they've got that thing about them where I just feel so cared for. And it's just amazing because, you know, John just turned 81. What manner of love? But I feel like I'm John's son. Behold what manner of love that we should be called the sons of God, the daughters of God. I hope, and you know, because we're all part of this amazing revelation of the Father heart of God, and I know we're all at different places in our ability to understand that and to, to own it, you know, to actually really walk in it, but this revelation, I believe, is foundational to us being the loving people that he's calling us to be. For us to be able to usher in a revival of love. I think it's essential that we take time to behold his love. And I think that in this situation, when you think about the, the love of the Father that we should be called his sons, we're talking about a number of things right in that moment. Because what we're talking about is not just the love of a creator for the creation. There is a love that I believe God has for us in creation. There's also a love that grieves over the fact of human sin in the world and the fact that we did turn away from him when we had full access to him. And then we have the love of the Father who set in motion a redemptive plan to restore humanity to the original purpose for which he created us, right? We have the love that actually chose Abraham and Sarah and drew them out of Ur of the Chaldees and led them through a season of, of promises and promises and promises and then finally fulfillment and then raising up the patriarchs of Isaac and Jacob and then arranging for them to go into the, the womb of Egypt for 430 years while they moved from being a, a group of 70 people in a, a small tribe to coming forth 200, I mean, 2 million and a half. And so they were finally able to fulfill the promise by taking the land that God had promised them. And all of that is love. All of that is the Father's love. And, you know, again, not really fully calling us sons yet. That's for a later time. But then he raises up Moses, and Moses gets the law, and then he raises up Samuel, and Samuel ordains David, and David sets up a kingdom, and the kingdom begins to prosper, and it goes for a long season. But always, through the whole time, God is speaking a word about the future, saying, at some point, I'm going to become flesh and dwell among you. At some point, God himself is going to manifest that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And it's just, it's just like, it literally is a love story. And the whole thing is incredible love. I mean, it's like, I loved this amazing woman. She turned away and ran off into the world, but then I kept going after her, and then finally I was able to come into the world she was in and draw her back to my son. You know, it's this love story. It's an eternal love story of God for us. And it doesn't end with him just restoring us 
to that original sort of created place, it, it, it ends with God actually putting his spirit inside of us and calling us daughters and sons. I mean, it's just such a beautiful thing. And that's why he challenges us to behold what manner of love he's given us that we should be called the children of God. Therefore, the world doesn't know us. And see, this is something we have to pay attention to right now, is that the church has lost incredible ground in this world. I don't know if we have ever been less influential if you look at the last two years. And the church has been marginalized. We've been considered and deemed, actually, declared to be non-essential. You know, an abortion clinic is very essential. A, a pot distribution center is very essential. The church, no, I'm sorry, you're, you're not essential. You guys understand, the world doesn't know us. And we haven't been making ourselves known, nor have we made him known. I mean, we just went through a painful election, right? And I know that, you know, I mean, it's just a, a difficult situation because this entire thing, I don't know if the world saw the love of the church. I mean, we saw a lot of other stuff. We saw a lot of anger, a lot of polarization, a lot of accusation, a lot of pointing of fingers. I don't know if we saw love. I don't think the world saw love during this last season. You know, I have a friend who was, at the time, in 1980, he was the main fundraiser for the Moral Majority. I don't know if you guys know what the Moral Majority was. Anybody remember it? But once upon a time, there was a group of Christians who rose up and said, Hey, Jerry Falwell, we're going we're gonna, to, you know, we want our nation back. We want our nation to be godly. And I think they were sincere and real. Okay? And, and I think, you know, Jerry Falwell Sr. was a good man. Okay, and so my friend was the fundraiser for him. His name happened to be Colonel Donor. <laughs> and that was his given name, Colonel Donor, and I was on his board for a little while. Anyway, he wrote a book called The Samaritan Strategy. Okay, and uh, Colonel, uh, amazing guy. Anyway, he would travel around with Jerry Falwell, and they would do rallies with the young Republicans on college campuses. And they were trying to get Reagan elected. Okay, and so they, but they would often have riots on campus. There would be people come out to protest them and kick them off the campus. Well, anyway, they happened on this one campus one time where they were doing a rally and literally it got so violent and so threatening by the opposition that was coming against them that they had to shut it down. The police shut it down. They turned off the power. They had to pack up their gear, get out of there. But they heard that Mother Teresa was coming to the campus that night. And so they got home, they changed, they kind of disguised themselves and came back just to hear Mother Teresa. They'd never heard her before. They wanted to check her out. And here she was. She was talking about how bad abortion is. She was talking about bad, how bad you know, immorality and homosexuality and naming all these different things. But she was doing so in her typical mother way, you know, as a nun, okay? And, uh, and then these guys looked around the room and they saw actually some of the main protesters that had kicked them off the campus that day with their hands like folded saying, oh, mother, speak to us. 
Now, that doesn't mean they repented. But it just kind of shocked this guy. He said, wait a minute. Why is she getting the ear of these people who hate us? What's going on here? And he came to a revelation that the church has lost the right to lead because we've lost the will to serve. That there's a love dimension. And again, I don't know Mother Teresa, and I, you know, I mean, she's obviously passed on, but I don't know her life or her, you know, I, honestly, I don't know her. I've read some of her books, and I thought, wow, amazing stuff. Okay. But one thing she demonstrated was tangible love. You guys understand? Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. Are we children of our Father? Are we reflecting Him in the way that we care for each other? I mean, you just flip on YouTube or, or uh, social media, Twitter, and you just see all the vehemence and the violence, not just from Christians to the world, but from Christians to one another. I'm not saying I don't believe in good doctrine. I do. And if somebody's out of step with good doctrine, I think they should be challenged. But the Scripture says clearly in Genesis... Uh, uh, in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, it says, You who are spiritual, if you find your brother in a fault, you correct them with a spirit of meekness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. In other words, there's a, there's a spirit that we need to walk in if we want to behold how, how loving the Father is, if we want to demonstrate his love. And so it says this, but there's a couple of interesting things I want to point out here. I don't know what happened to my... Uh, it says, it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. In other words, as much as we think we know what it's going to be like when we get to heaven, I don't think we have a clue. I don't think that, you know, once we've, as the poet says, shuffled off this mortal coil, you know, think of it, a mortal coil. <laughs> once we've shuffled off this mortal coil, what is it going to be like? When we get to be with him forever. What is it going to be like when we finally look face to face? Not through faith, but through, through actual interaction, contact with the living God. What is it going to be like? Well, the scripture tells us it doesn't yet appear now what it's going to be like. But guess what? When he appears, we will be made like him. In other words, we will be transformed into the very nature of God. The sin that so easily besets us in our life right now will be a thing of the past. There's going to be a transformational dynamic that takes place in us that is the culmination, it's the consummation of God's love for us manifested in Christ-likeness that will actually be ours. I don't think it means that we're all going to be one uniform thing. I think that Jesus's Nature will be imprinted so thoroughly on each one of us in our unique individuality. I mean, this is the manner of love he has. The purpose he has, the future he has for us. This incredible gift to be able to rule and reign with him. The scripture says, don't you know that you're going to judge angels? And that's a heavy statement. <laughs> that's the unseen realm right there. You know, it's like... You're going to judge angels. You 
are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In times past, we were not a people, but now we're the people of God. In, in times past, we didn't know. Now we know mercy. We know the grace of God. And, it, and the mercy is multiplied by the fact that it's not just simply letting us off the hook, but it's owning us. It's literally bringing us that spirit of adoption, gathering us in and saying, Behold what manner of love. You're my sons and daughters. You're no longer orphans. You're no longer on your own. You're no longer uh, without a protector, without a provider, without a caregiver. You are now my sons and daughters, and I own you. And I own you twice because I own you by virtue of the fact that I made you. And I also own you by virtue of the fact that I shed my blood to purchase you back at this time. It's like this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we are sons and daughters of the Most High God. I mean, <laughs> come on, we can just laugh about that. That's pretty awesome. Come on, get happy for a moment because it's really... As one friend of mine used to say, if you're happy, notify your face. You know, I was like, I'm happy, you know. But um, anyway, it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know when he appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. And, you know, I, I, I used to think, like, my first five years as a Christian... I used to think heaven is for wimps. Like if you need a heaven, the promise of heaven, to be a good boy or a good girl, you don't really love Jesus that much. You know? It's like Jesus deserves your absolute obedience and devotion regardless of whether there's a heaven or a hell. In fact, if he chose to send you to hell at the end of it, he still deserves your love. That was my immature <laughs> approach to <laughs> Yeah, that's, that'll win some souls right there. But guess what? I started going through some trials. <laughs> and the more trials I went through, I thought, wow, heaven looks really good about now. <laughs> like, I just want a beeline. I want an e-ticket. You know, just get me on that train. Because this is just too much, you know. This, this life, this world, you know, is too much. I want to be with him. I want to see him as he is. I want to... But look what he says here. He says, everyone who has this hope in him, in him, so you have this hope in him. that he, We talked about trust earlier. There's a trust, there's a hope that we have. That when we stand before him, regardless of how hard your life is right now, whatever disappointments you're struggling with, whatever sin patterns are in your life right now, if you are born again, you will see him. And when you see him, bam, instantly, you will be like him. For you shall see him as he is. And this hope has power. Not just power for the future, but it has power for this moment. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself. In other words, I'm going to stand before him someday. I'd really prefer it if I could stand before him and have him applaud and give me a hug you know, I don't need a word of correction. You understand? In other words, I think there's some born-again Christians who are going to get to heaven just by the skin of their teeth. 
That's what the Bible says. It says judgment begins at the house of God. And if the, if the righteous are scarcely saved, how will, the, how will the sinner stand? That's a pretty heavy statement. Okay. But I don't want to just, you know, slip my door. You know, it's like I don't want to just, you know, kind of make it in, you know, kind of like smelling like smoke. <laughs> right? I mean, I would love to hear the angels rejoicing. And, and, and that requires something in this life. That's really why we developed the whole Destiny Finder thing. It's not to, you know... It's not just a clever way to get you to serve in the church. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> it really is real that Jesus created each one of us for a purpose. And that we will never be more fulfilled in life than when we're fulfilling the exact thing that he created us for. I mean, that's the, that's the message. It's like he created you for a purpose and you're never going to be more fruitful than when you're bearing the exact fruit that he ordained for you to bear. It's like, as pastors and leaders, we need to be preparing our people for that day when they stand before Jesus. Now again, his mercy will overcome every single obstacle at that day. At that day, when you see him, you'll be like him regardless. Like let's say all you were able to go was five paces in this life even though he, he ordained for you 500 paces, but still he's going to speed you. He's going to, you know, if you're on the football field and you're holding the ball and just kind of hunkered down, he's going to pick you up and carry you across the goal line because that's the kind of God he is. But that's not his best. His best is that we would completely ace this thing, that we would cr crush it, that we would, you know, be able to do a dance, you know, in the end zone, Right? And, and it's like, this is why it's so helpful to begin to envision, okay, Jesus, you have some things for me to do in this planet before I go to be with you. I want to do my best to present myself to you, to partner with you for the fulfillment of those things that you've ordained. And if I fall short this or that level, hey, I trust your mercy. I trust your grace. I remember reading the um, parable of the soils when I was young. You know, there's four soils, right? The trampled soil. And then there was the stony soil. There was the weedy soil. And then the good soil. And then he says this interesting thing at the end. He says, and you'll bear forth fruit, some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. How many of you, when you first came to Jesus, said, I want to be a 30-fold Christian. <laughs> That's my goal in life. I don't really want to ace this thing. I just want to be 30. No. I mean, I just said, Jesus, you are so beautiful. You're so wonderful. You're so loving. You're so worthy. I want to be 100-fold. And I gave myself to be that, but then, you know, life hits you, and, and the areas of brokenness in my inner being and all those things... You know, I don't know how God's going to assess me at the end of the day. But I'll be happy with a 30-fold fruit for him, a basket full of 30-fold, you know? Because that's my best. Thank you, Jesus. So when he says this, 
everyone who has this hope of that immediate transformation where we get to be with him and forever in his presence, actually we start doing business. We start purifying ourselves. Now what is purity? Think about that for a moment. Because I've been thinking about purity, like, you know, we think of purity as sinlessness, and that's probably one aspect of purity. But I don't think it's the whole picture. You know, because you can think of impurity as pollution. Like, okay, I just watched something bad on TV, or, you know, or I just had a negative thought, or, you know, I just let something come out of my mouth, I was angry at one of my coworkers, or whatever it is. You know, you can think of, okay, that was impure. All right? But what's interesting is, Purity is not only about a lack of pollution, it's also about a lack of dilution. You understand? Like how many parts per million of Jesus are we walking around with? You know what I mean? Because there's so many other things in this world. And so if you have this hope of being with him and being transformed when you look into his eyes and you're literally like, you're like him, because you see him as he is. And that hope, that expectation of being with him forever and ever as the best Christ in you as you can possibly manifest, that we start doing stuff now to make that happen. We start the journey now. We start saying no to stuff that we know is going to pollute us, for sure. I love that passage in Hebrews 12 where it says, set aside the weight and the sin that so easily besets us. Okay, we're, we're focused on sin a lot, but what about the weight? Just the stuff you're carrying around that isn't necessarily sinful, but it's just dragging you down. Okay, let's put off both. Let's, let's, put, off the, let's put off the stuff that's going to hinder us. The pollution and the dilution. And let's start feeding ourselves in a way that we can actually expect the fruit to bore, to bear. I mean, hope is one of the most beautiful assets in the kingdom. Everyone who has this hope purifies himself. The Apostle Paul said in the famous chapter on love, faith, hope, and love, these three, the greatest is love, but hope and faith are pretty good too, okay? Hope. You know, hope Faith is the evidence of things hoped for. Faith is the, current, it's the, it's the current apprehension of something that has yet to come to pass. Okay? Faith, hope, and love are like a trinity of heart. And if we can manifest that trinity of heart, we'll find transformation. The challenge is we live in a disappointing world. And probably most of us in this room have had big dreams at times past. We've hit brick walls. We've had disappointments. We've had, in some cases, abusive situations, calamities, accidents, different things that hit us. I mean, life throws a lot of curveballs. How do we maintain hope? It's similar to trust, what we prophesied earlier. How do we f- cultivate hope? A couple of verses, I'll, I'll kind of wrap this up, is... One is Zechariah chapter 9, verse 12. says, return to the stronghold, you prisoner of hope. 
for behold, I will restore double to you. Do you realize you're a prisoner of hope? I don't care how disappointed you are. You're a prisoner of hope. Why? Because you serve a God of hope. A God who ultimately said, this hope will actually purify your life. It's a hope of something he's guaranteed in his own blood that will happen. You're a prisoner of hope. You cannot not hope. Because every time you look in his eyes, you're going to see hope. Every time you come close to him, you're going to feel hope. You cannot not hope. On the other hand, you cannot control the things you hope for. So you're a prisoner of hope. You're captured by hope. So it always leads us back to, because unfortunately, if we can predict the things that we hope for, then we hope in hope. Then we idolize hope. But our hope is in a person, and that person isn't going to play by our rules or, or you know, jump when we say hop, you know. It's like he's, he's a being, and we're in a world of dynamics. So hope is something that we have to apprehend. We have to lay hold of it, or it lays hold of us. Okay? And then the final verse that comes to my mind is verse in Romans chapter 5, where it says, Rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You ever remember that verse? Turn there. You will. Open your Bibles. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Rejoice in the hope of the glory. See, he's talking about the same thing. He's talking about this glory that he has for us, this incredible transformational moment that he's guaranteed that we are going to be there and we're going to, we're going to enter in through that gate, we're going to see his face, we're going to be transformed into his image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord, because he's at work right now doing that, but when we see him, we will be like him, because we'll see him as he is, and everyone who has that hope purifies himself, even as he is pure, right? Okay. He says, rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And then he says, glory in tribulation. What does it mean to glory in tribulation? It means to boast. Like to be so excited about your, your trials. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I got another one. It's like I know some bass fishermen. It's like when you catch a fish, you're probably feeling pretty happy, you know. But when you catch a trial, you don't usually feel that happy. Yeah, it's like, but he's saying, Rejoice, boast, glory in tribulation, knowing a couple things. The tribulation works patience. Patience works character. And character works hope. It's a hope loop. And why is that hope there? Because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. See, hope actually ultimately manifests in love. Thank you for listening to the Consumed Church weekly podcast. This entire service and others can be viewed on our Facebook and YouTube channels. If you would like to partner with us in raising the next generation of kingdom bringers, you can do so at theconsumedchurch.com slash give. <laughs>